0: Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com odyssey. Coming up. I wouldn't want to live next door to Russell Tillis. I would put it that way. I don't think that he's the best man.
1: There were loud bangs in the neighborhood at 10 o'clock at night that night, recorded by a surveillance camera in the neighborhood, sounding like gunshots.
0: The crime that was committed against my sister is a crime that was committed against an Asian American woman.
2: For Vault Studios, I'm Will Johnson. I'm Reed Redmond. You're listening to The Daily Crime. On today's episode of The Daily Crime, Reed and I wanted to do something a little different. We've covered a lot of stories over the past uh, five or six months, and uh, several of these stories have updates and developments, and we want to keep our listeners in the loop. So, Reed, that's what we're here to do today, right? Just bring our listeners some updates on cases we've previously covered. Yeah, you know, Will, I was uh, doing a little math probably for the first time since
3: college, if I'm being honest. And I believe our 100th episode is this coming Monday. So just a huge thank you to everybody who's been listening to the show, who's been telling friends about the show. That's how we keep this thing going. That's how we keep putting out episodes. And a lot of the stories that we do cover are ongoing. So there are a number of updates on stories we've covered that we wanted to
2: share. Thanks also to all of our reporters across the country from various stations who have spent a lot of time telling us about these cases, one that we'll start with here, Reed, has to do with Maggie Long in Colorado. And this is such a heartbreaking case without an arrest, if I'm correct. Tell us a little about the case. What's the update? Right. Well, that's that's the unfortunate
3: news here is that the case is still unsolved. But this really is one of those cases that that stands out to me of of the ones we've covered, not just because of the level of violence, but you know, when we first covered this, we heard from Maggie's sisters who talked about how she was the sister who would always go the extra mile. She would one-up them, if you will. And and, uh, they said that their home just doesn't feel like home without Maggie. And the news here is that her killing has been reclassified by the FBI as a potential hate crime.
2: And Reed, the details of this case were just so horrible to hear about. I mean, Maggie Long, this young woman, was found burned in her house, right? Yeah, Maggie was a teenage high school student who was stopping home from school
3: one day to pick up some snacks to bring to a school function and um, there were at least three men inside her home is what investigators have said when she got there um, and, and they ended up burning the home and, and burning Maggie alive and at the time investigators said that they believed it was a crime of opportunity that that she ran into a burglary in progress but but with just the, the horrific level of violence here that motive that this was just a burglary in progress that she interrupted and was in the wrong place at the wrong time that just didn't seem to explain or, or at least a fully explain what happened there. So, Reed, what does this exactly mean when it's reclassified as a potential hate crime? So, the FBI gave a statement to KUSA describing what a hate crime is, saying, a hate crime is a criminal offense against a person or property motivated in a whole or in part by the offender's bias against a religion, disability, ethnicity, national origin, sexual orientation, gender, or gender identity. What we still don't know here is what specifically led to this reclassification in Maggie Long's case, if there's some new evidence or if it was a re-examination of the existing evidence. But as for what it means in terms of the investigation, the Park County Sheriff said that they'll get more resources to be able to investigate this. And I assume what he means by that is that there will be additional resources coming from the federal government.
2: And any word from family members with this new information about this reclassified as a potential hate crime?
3: Yeah, Maggie Long's sisters have spoken with KUSA and, and they said they were surprised by the news, but both ultimately said that they think that this reclassification as a potential hate crime is in line with the facts of the case and that they really don't think it it should be ignored that this was a crime committed against an Asian-American girl. And to quote Connie Long, uh, Maggie's sister, those could be, in, in her words, contributing factors for why these perpetrators thought it was okay to do that to her.
1: Knowing what happened to Maggie and just the nature of the violence It is something that should be taken into consideration. Her race, her gender, you know, all of those are contributing factors
0: for why these perpetrators thought it was okay to do that to her. The crime that was committed against my sister is a crime that was committed against an Asian American woman.
3: The sisters hope more federal resources will help reveal new information and that time passing will convince someone to talk.
0: Circumstances change, and maybe now the people who may have known something, you know, in December twenty um, seventeen, um, are now in a place where they can, you know, speak to their truth. All right,
2: Reed. Well, we'll stay uh, on top of that one and let our listeners know what, if anything, comes out of that investigation. The next case we're going to talk about, and new information, has to do with Briasia Terrell. At the end of March, you shared her story. She's a 10-year-old, or was a 10-year-old, who went missing near Davenport, Iowa in the summer of 2020. And a few days after we ran that episode, we shared an update that tragically, her body had been discovered in nearby Clinton County, Iowa. But there's new news on this case, right? Yeah, charges have been filed uh, against
3: Henry Dinkins, who is the father of Briasia's half-brother. And our listeners might remember Uh, from our initial episode on this, that that Briasia and her half-brother were spending the night at Henry Dinkins' house last July, and that's when and where she was last seen alive, as far as anyone knew. Dinkins is now charged with first-degree murder and first-degree kidnapping, and the allegation is that he shot and killed Briasia.
2: The charging documents are public record, and they read as follows. Murder first degree, on or about July 10th, 2020... Henry Dinkins did remove and confine, confine a child, BT, from 2744 East 53rd Street, Davenport, Iowa, and with premeditation, malice aforethought, and intent to kill BT, shot her with a firearm, causing her death.
3: And I remember talking to Luke Clary at WQAD about his coverage of this case, and what was really clear in talking to him was just how... Significantly, this case affected people in that area. And it clearly had a big impact on him to cover it and to get to know Briasia through talking to her mom and her family members. And, you know, my heart just goes out to this family and this community after, you know, someone that was supposed to be looking after Briasia that night is now charged with killing her.
2: And what do we know about this man, Henry Dinkins? So he was
3: actually already behind bars on unrelated charges. And it turns out he has a pretty lengthy criminal history. He is a registered sex offender, and the AP recently reported that uh, when he is alleged to have committed this crime, he'd actually just been released on parole uh, a couple years early. And that was a sentence stemming from charges of operating a vehicle while intoxicated. So the Iowa Parole Board had determined in March of 2020 that he was, uh, quote, able and willing to fulfill the obligations of a law-abiding citizen. And that's, I guess, the prerequisite for being paroled in the state of Iowa And it was only about four months after he was released early that investigators say he kidnapped, shot, and killed Breja Terrell. New documents show Henry Dinkins was released on parole less than four months before the Davenport 10-year-old's disappearance. Dinkins had been in prison for driving while under the influence of illegal drugs. His probation officer later recommended his release after he completed a substance abuse program.
2: All right, one other case, Reed, that you covered where there's a, a new update has to do with Russell Tillis and so-called House of Horrors. Give us a quick refresher on this case. What happened?
3: This was a pretty disturbing case out of Jacksonville, Florida. Russell Tillis's home uh, became known as a House of Horrors after police found it booby-trapped when they went to arrest him on uh, misdemeanor charges, I believe. And then eventually, after the remains of a 30-year-old woman named Joni Gunter were found uh, buried in his backyard, he was charged with murder and, and
2: convicted. Okay, so he'd been convicted but had yet to be sentenced. What's the latest?
3: That's right. Tillis had been convicted of kidnapping, murdering, and dismembering Gunter last we covered this case, but he had avoided the death penalty after the jury did not unanimously recommend a death sentence. Under Florida law, that left only one other option, really, as, as a sentence of life in prison for him. Uh, so there aren't any real surprises here now that he has been sentenced, but he was finally sentenced last week to two life sentences plus an extra 30 years. So... Russell Tillis will be in prison for the rest of his life. And I imagine for a lot of folks in Jacksonville, there's finally some sense of, I don't know if closure is the right word, but but at least a sense that they'll be able to begin to move on from what has been a really disturbing case and trial.
2: Reed, have we heard anything from anyone else
3: involved in the case or in the trial? Yeah, reporter at First Coast News Don White was actually able to get an interview with one of the jurors, which gave us a lot of insight into their deliberations.
0: At first, when I was picked, I cried because I couldn't imagine ever being in a position where I had to decide if somebody lived or died.
3: Nine jurors voted in favor of the death penalty, which means that there were three holdouts. Um, and this this juror that she spoke to, April Michaelopoulos, said she was one of the nine that voted in favor of the death penalty. She said she actually uh, made the decision during the trial that he was guilty. The day that he took the stand, um, she said in her words that nothing he said matched what the detectives were telling the jury. In her opinion, and that's you know the day that she made the decision that he's guilty of this and and we should convict.
0: I wouldn't want to live next door to Russell Tillis. I would put it that way. I don't think that he's the best man. Um, I think aside from what happened to Miss Gunter, I think that he is a bad seed. I think he comes from you know a bad upbringing. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey.
2: All right, Reed, thanks for those updates on all three of those cases. Turning now to a case that I covered earlier this year. Uh, in April, we told you about a Yale graduate student who'd been shot and killed. You'll remember that one, Reed.
3: Yeah, yeah. I remember that there was a nationwide manhunt for a suspect in that case, if I'm not mistaken. What's what's the latest there?
2: Yeah, you, you're correct. Kevin Zhang was the victim this young, uh, as a lot of people described him, very sweet guy who was newly engaged, was shot and killed outside uh, in a neighborhood not far from you know his campus. And there was a person of interest early on, uh, or at least someone who police thought could have been involved. And very quickly, it turned into a, a local manhunt. And there were some sort of bizarre details around what happened that day. This Uh, individual, and and his name is Ching Shuan Pan. Uh, He was seen at a local hotel checking in, and then he sort of like walked down the hall, went out the back door, disappeared, and then I believe went to Massachusetts. uh, And and police were trying to catch up with him, obviously, and they had questions, but they couldn't find him. He was gone. Uh, And so a local manhunt quickly evolved into a nationwide manhunt. And, you know, those kind of things can go on for many months, if not years uh the news and the new development is that he was located. He was arrested in Alabama. in late May. after just three months on the run, court officials say he was discovered in a an apartment in Montgomery, Alabama, renting the place under a false name. So investigators had named Pon a person of interest in Zhang's death before the investigation showed he was actually a suspect in the death. Uh, he is now officially charged. He's accused of killing 26 year old. Kevin Zhang, he had $19,000 in cash in his possession. He had seven cell phones, several SIM cards, and his father's uh, passport. So he is now uh, behind bars. Uh, law enforcement sources remain convinced that Pan, who's 30, was infatuated with Zion Perry. That was the fiancé of Kevin Zhang. I mentioned he was engaged. So there's a lot of uh, interesting details about this case that investigators have not fully revealed uh but I think we'll be learning a lot more in coming months.
3: Yeah, it sounds like there there is a lot more to learn. Where uh where will this go from
2: here? What's next in terms of uh court dates for Pon? Yeah, so th- the warrant uh that in really is chock full of information I understand uh won't be unsealed until uh actually not long from now, mid-June. And then the next court date is the middle of July when uh, his attorney hopes to make a bond reduction. Currently twenty million dollars down to one million dollars, and finally, Will. I know you've been looking into a
3: case that we haven't covered here on the Daily Crime yet, but uh, but we wanted to tell our listeners about this one, having to do with a woman who disappeared five months ago in California. Right?
2: Yeah, we actually covered the case of Maya Millete on our weekly show, True Crime Chronicles. Uh, as you mentioned, in early May, if you're a regular listener to that show, you'll be familiar with the case. I spoke to David Godfredson, an investigative producer with CBS News 8 in San Diego, about this very high-profile case and some of the most recent developments.
1: Maya Meliette went missing on January 7th. She had been having months of uh, marital issues with her husband. Uh, she reportedly fought with her husband on January 7th and then... Later that night, uh, there were loud bangs in the neighborhood at 10 o'clock at night that night, recorded by a surveillance camera in the neighborhood sounding like gunshots. Additionally, we found out later that uh, Maya had made an appointment with a divorce attorney on January 7th as well. The next day, January 8th, uh, her husband, told family members that he had gone to the beach in the in the family's vehicle and he was gone for 10 to 12 hours. And he told family members that he forgot his cell phone and so he, his f- cell phone was not with him and he was gone for 10 to 12 hours the following day. Larry Miliete is the husband. He has not been named a suspect or a person of interest by Chula Vista Police. In fact, the police uh, typically do not name suspects in uh, these types of investigations. The police say this is a missing persons uh, case, not uh, a criminal investigation at this point.
2: So that's the background on this case, but police have been updating the public and the press on the investigation regularly. Again, David Gonfridson.
1: Well, uh, Chula Vista police recently put out an update on the case as they do every other week. Uh, They say they have served 42 search warrants in the case. Uh, They've interviewed 61 people, and um, they've received over 85 tips on uh, possible sightings of Maya, etc. Some of those sightings uh, that police have received are in uh, California, New Mexico, and Arizona. Early on in the case, Chula Vista police put out a news release saying that the husband had hired an attorney and that on the advice of his attorney, he is no longer cooperating with the investigation. And we know from family members who go out and search for Maya every single weekend that Larry Milliette has never participated in one of those searches for his wife. Now, I did recently speak with the attorney representing uh, Larry Milliette and she tells me the reason he is not participating in the searches is because he's effectively acting as a single father at this point, working a job, trying to take care of his three kids, ages 4, 9, and 11. And so he simply doesn't have time uh, to participate in these weekend searches for his wife.
2: So for now, searches continue for Maya Miyate, and we will continue to bring you updates on this heartbreaking case out of
3: California. Thank you, Will. And those are all the updates we have for this one. But we're going to try to keep you updated on cases that we've covered whenever possible. And of course, we're going to continue bringing you five new cases every single week, Monday through Friday, right here on The Daily Crime.
2: And be sure to check out our weekly show I mentioned earlier, True Crime Chronicles, if you haven't already, wherever you listen to podcasts. For The Daily Crime, I'm Will Johnson, along with Reed Redmond.